All right. Good morning, everybody. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an honor and a privilege to be up here again. And the enemy's attacking our church, isn't he? This is a lot of affliction going on. I even felt it a couple of times myself uh, this week. And, um, you know, if he can't divide us, he's going to try to scare the daylights out of us, right? So let's uh, keep, let's keep playing and let's keep glorifying the Lord. Um, our scripture, our text this morning is going to be in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 27. And I've entitled the sermon, Sermon on the Mount, the Final Call. So I'll give you some time to turn there. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 27. Okay. And I'm reading out of the New American Standard Bible, and the text reads like this, Jesus speaking. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad, bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce good, bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, everyone who hears my, the, these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house. Yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell and great was its fall. Lord, I do ask, guide us in our time in your word today. May we offer our worship to you, filter out the distractions of the morning, the week, and give us strength and energy to hear what you have to say in Jesus' name. And may we really apply these things to our heart. Amen. If you were to estimate, how many religions, worldwide religions, do you think there would be? A hundred? 500,000. It's estimated that of the known world religions is about 4,200 different religions worldwide. They have many different sources of worship, many different doctrines, precepts, and requirements, and many different titles for what they call their final destination of these religions. But despite all of these facts, did you ever realize that when you strip it down, there are really only two religions? Just two. And Jesus is going to tell us about these right now, just two. Moreover, did you, know that this, did you know that the same God, the one true God of the Bible, is the God of both of these religions? That's right. 
Now in the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew chapter 5 through 7. It's a clear contrast between the prevailing belief of apostate Judaism, which advocated salvation by being self-righteous. It taught that salvation could be quote unquote earned by keeping the law and fulfilling a laundry list of man-made laws, much like we see in Roman Catholicism and other religions. Okay. Uh, it was the prevailing thought, uh, but when Jesus went to the base of the Mount of Olives, he said in Matthew 5, 3, and this must have been very shocking to his hearers, his opening words in the Sermon on the Mount were, blessed, of the poor, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In stark contrast to what, that they, were, what they were trusting in, people thought that they were going to be good by keeping the law, doing their religion, but Jesus said, uh-uh. And he's going to, in this whole sermon, he's going to flip any thought of man-made religion being good enough for hell, heaven, excuse me, regardless of what that religion is. And again, in this case, he has apostate Judaism in play. Okay. He says in verse, he says in verse four, just going reviewing the Beatitudes, he says, goes on to say, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted mourning over their sin. Blessed are the gentle for their, they shall inherit the earth. Verse five, uh, he's talking about a humble attitude, meek. Uh, not judgmental, he's, and he's really going right after the religious leaders of Israel primarily here. Bless, uh, verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. In contrast to the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Israel, who thought that their righteousness was good enough for heaven. Uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst and for righteousness. It's a righteousness that presupposes that we don't have it yet until we're fully glorified. So you hunger and thirst for it. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The Pharisees and the religious leaders were anything but merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pharisees and religious leaders of Israel were anything but. Uh, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And then blessed are those who have been persecuted past tense for the sake of righteousness. That's us. For, they, for theirs, those are the preceding generations, the generations that came before us down through the millennia. Blessed are those who have been, past tense, persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he personalizes it in verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when people insult you or continue to insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of things against you because of me. They're not, Jesus isn't here, so they whip on us. They, got, they can't touch him, but they could whip on his representatives, and we're seeing that worldwide. Rejoice and be glad. Why? For great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is our time to take the baton from those from the generations before us and take that symbolic cross. All right. Now in verses 21 to 27 of chapter 5, he gives six contrasts or antithesis of you have heard it was said, but I say to you, the religious leaders of Israel had perverted scripture and to the point where understanding one thing, when you mix error with truth, it no longer becomes truth. The pure milk of the word of God is perverted and it's, it's, it's one toxic drop of error perverts any truth that the scripture might have. It's like, uh, it, it, it's a perversion. Now, it's important to know that back in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 to 12, in the Beatitude, the word blessed means makarios. Happy are those 
who display these attributes. A beatitude is a characteristic that would clearly identify somebody as being a follower of Jesus Christ. Okay, and it's it flips religion right on its its head and says, no, the way up, you want to go up and get exalted, you have to go down first. And we'll get to that in a little while. Uh, in, in chapter six, uh, he talks about uh, he talks about practicing righteousness in public. Don't you want to do that? He talks about the cure for anxiety in Matthew, chapter six, verses twenty five to thirty four. In verse 33, he says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, not your own, and all these things will be added to you. And then in chapter 7, verses 5, 1 to 5, Jesus talks about warning, uh, warns against judging others to examine oneself. Um, and, and the religious leaders of Israel did just that. They judged without looking for themselves. They were fastidious in, the, in, in keeping the exteriors of religion but God knew their hearts. In verses 7, 11, prayer and asking, seeking and finding. Uh, in verse 12, um, he says this, uh, pardon me, let me get there. In verse uh, 12 of chapter 7, uh, Jesus said, in everything, therefore, winding up the sermon. And this really, verse 12 really winds up the sermon here. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you would want to them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. The golden rule is not salvation. It's a display of a characteristic of somebody that is salt and light and a true follower of Jesus Christ. Now, we come to our text, and it is the final call. The sermon for most pretty much is over. And what we're going to see here are four contrasts, four contrasts uh, of two, uh, contrasting two things in, in um Verses 13 to 14, we're going to see the two gates. In verses 15 uh, to 20, we're going to see the two trees and their fruits. In verses 21 to 23, we're going to see the sayers versus the obeyers. And in verses 24 to 27, we're going to see two house builders and the foundation that they're building their house on. So let's get started. He says in verse 13, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who enter through it. Um, now it's interesting, uh, he says enter. He says enter the narrow gate. This is a definite article. It's not one of many gates. It is one, it is an exclusive gate. It is, and the thing is, it's not a suggestion but a command. People say, well, people close sermons. How many of you want to, do you want to go to heaven? Raise your hand. Now, who's not going to want to raise their hand? This is a command. You want, do you want to invite Jesus into your heart? Does that sound like a command? It sounds more like a, 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 a wishy-washy invitation. You know, he says, enter. It's a command. Um, the narrow gate is exclusive, like I said. It is not all-inclusive. I like what John MacArthur says. Uh, we, we see here that both gates have destination signs. They have they both marked destination heaven. MacArthur says, nobody's selling hell. Nobody's selling hell. Come join our false religion. You know, it's only it's going to lead to hell, but you're going to have a good time in the process because nobody's going to give you a hard time. Narrow, in this case, is small. Stenos. It's a small gate that you... The gate, why? Because... 
The gate that you've entered and the path you're on right now is hell. It's a command to enter this gate, to get off the narrow path, to get off the wide road um, and, and, and go on to this narrow pathway, wide and broad. Uh, he says, why, why do this? Because the gate is, gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who enter into it. Uh, the gate, he wants you to get off. Jesus commands us, hearing the word, examining the evidence of scripture against us, our sins are hostile against us. And he says, enter this gate, an exclusive gate, hurry up. I'm commanding you to get off this wide gate, this wide pa uh, pathway and gate, gate and pathway, excuse me, that you've entered. Why does he say it? Because it, it, it's wide, broad, and it welcomes everything, everything and anything. Now, again, he has apostate Judaism in play here, works-based religion. This is a contrast between works-based religion and trusting in self, trusting in your estimation of yourself and your religion, uh, your lofty estimation of yourself when compared to others versus true saving faith. And he says it's populated, it's, it's broad. This is the opposite of Luke 9.23. There's no sacrifice involved here. There is no, if you want to go, if you're traveling in the, in the, in the, broad, in the broad way that leads to destruction, there's no, there's no sacrifice. There's no dying to self. There's no Luke 9.23. You don't pick up your cross and follow me. You're not worthy to be my disciple. That doesn't bother them. Let's just, well, let's just join our group. All these works-based religions, mainly, and it's, a, and it's, it's a gate that's populated by relativism. Well, you know, I don't believe what you b believe, but your truth, I, I accept your truth. You accept my truth. We're not going to be divided on anything. You know, doctrine's not going to divide us. You think Jesus is God. I think he's a man. And, 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 you know, let's just get along for the sake of getting along. Understand this, everyone, that this is not a contrast between religion and not religion. It's a contrast between true saving faith and its counterfeit, which is false religion, man-made religion. Jesus versus you. And if you're here today without Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I would ask you to really pay attention and follow along with this because the Bible is the Bible's true. It's not going to fail. Not one jot or tittle. He's saying that, uh, you know, because we have a tendency to think that we can earn, earn a promotion, earn a position on the team. But Christianity flips that. We have to go all the way down. Wide and broad welcomes everything, populated by the multitudes, uh, world workspace religion, relativism, uh, atheists, the irreligious, all types of sinful lifestyles welcome. There's plenty of room, right? What does Romans 1 verses 28 to 32 say? Uh, for this reason, God gave them over to a depraved mind. And in those verses, there are 21 characteristics that describe the depra a, 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 a depraved mind and heart. And that word depraved means it's a mind that's been tested and found to be useless and has no way of getting back. It is a conscience that has been seared with the branding iron. And if you read, if you're familiar with Romans 1 verses 28 to 32, you could see the downward spiral of a nation and its, consequ excuse me, its consequences for unbelief. And it's right there. And the free fall and the crash and burn occurs in verses 28 to 32. But this gate leads to destruction. Its pathway, its, its 
ending is certain. Its demise is certain. And the thing is, like I said, you could easily, verse 14, you could spot the, you could spot the, the broad way. Uh, in verse 13, there's many that enter through it. No sacrifice. Wide enough to, to welcome any, anything. Easily, from, a, from an aerial view, it's very easy to locate. You ever see a crowd from a distance, even in a, in a city? You could see it. Easily identifiable. And when I think of some of these charismatic churches and these false churches, Jolo, and anybody who knows me knows I don't mind naming names uh, because these teachers need to be called out by name. The Joel Osteens with their three services and 48,000 people coming in, multitudes. Does he ever preach about sacrifice? Does he ever preach about dying to self? No, hold up your Bibles. I'm gonna tell something a little funny before the sermon. It's detestable. We could, we could chuckle in it. You, we could chuckle on one end, but it's detestable. Watch out for the multitudes and churches are populated with them. In contrast to the easily identifiable gate, we come to the narrow gate in verse 14, right? For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. Now I said in verse 13 that the Greek word for narrow was small. This word narrow in verse 14, the Greek word is, is uh, libo, T-H-L-I-B-O. It means a compressed way, to press hard upon. Um, you have to symbolically squeeze your way through this to enter. And unlike the, the Broadway guys that welcomes multitude and they could go in a hundred wide through that gate, a thousand wide, it's so wide that it welcomes anyone. This is a gate that only admits one at a time. It's narrow, it's constricted. If you've ever been to a ball game or a sporting event, it's like a turnstile. Have you ever gone through a turnstile entering an, an event with, with somebody beside you? We get saved one at a time. What does it say in Luke 15, uh, verses seven to 10? There's more rejoicing by the angels in heaven over one sinner who repents. It's the illustration of coming through that turnstile. Then 99 righteous others, the, the ones that are on the Broadway who think they're okay. They think they're okay in their religion. They think they're okay in their estimation of themselves. No excess baggage, you dump all the baggage. You dump your self-righteousness, you dump your religious credentials, you dump your church membership. You must come helpless, you must come alone with nothing to offer. The illustration again in Matthew chapter five, third, uh, verse three, poor in spirit. This gate is also hard to find in verse 14. The gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and, 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 and it's hard to find. If you Googled, when I say hard to find, think about it. If you Googled, even in the Patchogue, Medford area, I had in my notes, Suffolk County, if you Googled Patchogue, New York churches, Medford, New York churches, and if you read the doctrinal statements, those of us who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, how many authentic Orthodox Christian churches would you actually find? I've seen you know, the, the so-called Christian programming on TV, most of it's not orthodox. No, most of it is not. You know, if you attended their services, the overwhelming majority of them are not preaching the gospel. You don't see any statement of faith on their website. You could tell anyone who's 
Vince, who has been who sit under, excuse me, sat under um, solid Bible teaching, will be able to spot toe deep preaching and or error, if that makes sense. And he says, um, you know, he says it's 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 hard to find. It's hard to find, and also it's very difficult to find. Turn with me to Luke, almost a parallel passage in Luke chapter uh, 13, Luke 13, verses uh, 22 to 24, when I get there, it's a difficult entry. You live, you're an unsaved person, you lived your whole life based on your authority, right? And we know that in Jesus's ministry, a lot of people left because they didn't like his preaching. They liked his miracles. They liked the show. They liked the health, wealth, and prosperity that he was providing and, and healing people and stuff. But when it came to preaching, John 6, 66, as they said, he, they walked with him no more. And this prompted one of the disciples to ask this uh, in, um, where to go? Sorry. In Luke 13, verses 23 and 24, he says this. Uh, 22 to 24 and, and he was passing through from one city and village to another teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem now again the empty space between 22 and 23 the disciples see that people are walking away from him in 23 he says and someone said to him Lord are there just a few people being saved few being saved and he said to them strive to enter through the narrow door why for many I tell you will seek to enter and will not be able Wow that's interesting. Strive, some of you know this already, to agonize, agonizomai. It means to engage in a fight. It's your way. You, uh, you, 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 this is an illustration, actually, of somebody who knows where they need to be, and they're, they're wrestling. It's a wrestling match, and it's an intense fight. I know I need to be there. But man, I gotta ch that means I got to change. What are my friends going to think of me? I, I need to push through this. I'm striving. I'm striving. Have you ever seen a track runner? The one who strives and gets through the narrow gate is the illustration of a track runner who is running for his, with all of his or her might down the stretch to get through that finish line and to get through uh, the gate of the finish line, so to speak. And they get there. And they, and they sometimes they even collapse. You know, as a footnote, that's only the beginning. Getting through the gate is one thing. Continuing on the pathways is something else. But if it's a genuine confession of faith and it's a genuine desire, the Lord will protect us. The Lord will protect us by his power. We don't have the power to save us uh, ourselves. We don't have the power to keep ourselves saved. And, you know, he also says this in the same illustration in Luke chapter 16, just a couple of pages over. In, when you talk about striving to enter, in Luke 16, 16, Jesus said this, the law and the prophets have, were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. Have you ever been on a subway, trying to catch a subway at the last minute and those doors are closing? People are pressing in. There's this level of urgency, and I think this is what Jesus has in view here, the, the strong desire, you know what, enter through this gate and do whatever it takes to do so. Sad also that 
sometimes you hear stories on Black Friday when the lines are L-shaped around the, around the building on these stores and the doors open a little bit and people just jam their way through it. Several years ago, one person died because people wanted to get their TV at a discount. I mean, it's horrible. But there was the, the whole idea was the urgency, and Jesus is, is, is commanding that we have that same urgency, those who are unsaved, to get through it and do whatever it takes to get through. Despite this, despite this, people will advocate, the overwhelming majority of people will advocate, well, well there's many roads that lead to heaven. God is a loving God. We're all his children. Friends, nothing can be further than the truth. What does it say in John 1.12? As many as received him, he gave them the right to be called children of God, even to those who believe in his name. As the, in his name as the only source of salvation. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Many of you know it. Nor the name under earth the given, by, given by man that we must be saved. Acts 4.12. Even in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, he said, I do not ask on behalf, I not only ask, I do not ask, Father, on behalf of those in the world, but those that you have given to me. We are not all God's children. And that's the big deception. Well, God loves us. He's going to accept me. He knows I got my weaknesses. He knows I'm a good person. He knows I do this, this, and this. Nothing could be further than the truth. So we've seen the two gates. Now in verses 15 to 20, the deceivers who try to uh, detour those entering the narrow gate. Um, it's almost like they got detour signs on the outside. Verse 15, he says, he says this. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Wolves. Externally, they look like they have good intentions. They look, they, and they, the, the sad thing is they sound educational. They sound educational. Um, but inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. I know when people are trained to spot counterfeit bills, it's very important that before they could spot a counterfeit, they know the characteristics of what a real $100 bill looks like. You see people uh, draw, drawing a line in the, in the grocery stores. Some of these people are mildly trained. There are those who are really trained to be able to discern the characteristics of a real $100 bill or any bill and a phony one. So what Jesus, what, so what I'm saying to you is this. There are many people, I mean, I used to think as a, as a new Christian, I used to think Joel Osteen was, you know, uh, clean gut guy, infectious smile. Boy, this is a breath of fresh air. And then as you learn the scriptures, you see, you discovered this guy's, this guy's a fraud. He's either a Christian in deep sin and not preaching the word of God, or he's an absolute fraud on his way to hell. And you see that in these, in these televangelist and televangelistic ministries, and you see it all around here on Long Island, around the country and around the world. They come to you externally, the false prophets. And he, again, he has in mind the proclaimants of apostate Judaism here, but he has in mind also anyone in our time who's preaching error. You will know them by their fruits, verse 16. 
Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? Uh, I remember when I was in the Navy, anytime the ship would go out to sea, they would convert the water, the, the water supply from, um, from uh, when we were underway, they converted the uh, salt water supply to fresh water supply. I made the mistake one day while the ship was barely underway and it hadn't converted yet to drink the water fountain and I spit it right out. It was salt water coming out of the fountain. What appeared, you know, it looks like a fresh water source and it's like ooh, coughing and stuff. And uh, the Lord has this in view. They look like they have your best intentions, but what is inside and coming out of them is error. And they're after your souls. They're after your money. Watch out for them. The only way we could do that is if we know how to discern and distinguish truth from error. It goes on to say, so every good tree bears good fruit. That's abiding in divine language in John 15. Uh, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. False teachers don't have any producing fruit, so they're, they're thrown into the fire. They've been marked out for condemnation. It's not that they were true and then they were false. And remember, truth mixed with error, error mixed with truth is error. It's like this water bottle representing pure milk of the word. And uh, all of a sudden you drop one drop of toxic waste in there and it, it just defiles the whole thing. It makes it undrinkable and it makes it very dangerous for our health. And in the same way, it has consequences, severe and perhaps eternal consequences when you sit under the teaching of these people, you know? So, he says, so then in verse 20, you will know them by their fruits. You'll be able to spot a phony. When you know the truth, you'll be able to spot a phony. Your grid system, by storing scripture in your treasury, you'll be able to, 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 to beep, beep. Jesus was just a man, beep. You need the baptism of the Holy Spirit to ensure your salvation. Beep, beep. You know, uh, speaking in tongues is evidence. Beep, beep. All of these things. Jesus didn't die on the cross. Beep, beep. All of these things. It's important that we discern these things. So we see the two gates. We see the two fruits. Now we go on to the sayers and obeyers in verses 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven will enter. Sayers versus obeyers. Not everyone who says, and it's interesting, look at verse 21 carefully. Not everyone who says to me, not everyone who says to me, John 5, 22, what does it say? Not even the father has given, uh, not even the father judges anyone. He has given all judgment to the son. Jesus Christ is going to be our judge. Believing, believers and unbelievers. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, um, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my father will enter. Verse 22, we meet the many from back in verses uh, from the broad gate again. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out many demons and in your name perform many miracles? 
These are the sayers saying that they believe in Jesus, but they have never truly surrendered to his lordship. They're trusting in their religion. They have an all-inclusive view about entry into heaven. Um, and, and he who does the will of my father, this is not works-based salvation. This is obedience based on submission and obedience and gratitude for what Jesus did in taking the punishment that they deserved on the cross. These are the obeyers. The sayers represent the religious. And they present, again, I'll read verse 22 again. Notice the way they present their religious resume to Jesus. Many will say on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? I did this, and in your name I cast out demons, and in your name I perform many miracles. Look at me. Look at us. This is self-exaltation. What does Jesus say in verse 23? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you, not at any time. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This is the opposite of John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them. John 10, 27, 28. The word know, you see that the construction there, it's based on a two-way personal relationship. It's not based on external religion. Jesus could see through all of our wrong motives. You who practice lawlessness. They looked externally re religious, but the Lord knew their hearts. Uh, you, and uh, you practice lawlessness, you who practice lawlessness, other translations say iniquity. Um, this is really interesting that uh, naming the name of Jesus, but inwardly workers of iniquity, iniquity. And you look again, the, the example of these televangelists tele um, and, and um, it, the word workers here in verse 23. Uh, uh, the word practice, I mean, uh, some uh, translations may say workers, laborers of iniquity. You didn't have me in mind. You worked for your own benefit and your own glorification, which he warned against in chapter 6 with the Pharisees practicing their righteousness in public, didn't he? I never knew you. What a shocking, and these people praise Jesus' name publicly. That's got to be really shocking when you think about it, the, the end of these people. Could you imagine the people, I'm just thinking about this for a second, the people that really thought they were good enough for heaven, and even in, you know, even in Protestant churches, regardless of the church, but they never served the Lord. They were never really grateful for their salvation. And as a result, what a shocking thing it must have been it must be when they when they breathe their last breath and wake up in eternity in torment with no chance of getting out. The rich man, rich man and Lazarus, what am I doing here, Lord? And he's still barking out orders. And remember one thing, as I'm thinking about this, when we die, we have eternal memory. What we believe here is fixed. There's no purgatory. There's no do-overs or anything like that. We saw that with the rich man. He still had a condescending attitude. He was in torment on the bottom of the barrel, having been humbled, and he still thought his way was right. Go to, the, go to my brothers, right? If, if they see Lazarus, they'll believe, send Lazarus. He's still being condescending towards Lazarus and, and, and barking out orders to Abraham, the father of the Jews. As if he still knows it. Meanwhile, he's, he's in traumatic pain. <laughs> 
And the thing that blows my mind, I think it's in verse 29 of Luke 16, the rich man after, and, and after Abraham said they have Moses and the prophets, let him look at them or read them. In the torment of hell, this is why I want you to see that it's so important to make this decision if you haven't yet. In the torment of hell, the rich man's answer to Father Abraham was, no, Father Abraham, I still know what's best. But if they, and Abraham said, if they're not even, if they don't read the prophets, which is the source that pointed to who Messiah was going to be, they're never going to be persuaded, even if somebody rises from the dead. That's it. It's game over for people like this. I just want you to understand that eternal, when we die, what we take in our hearts to heaven, good or bad, is going to be eternal. For the righteous, for those who are saved, full glorification. For those who are unsaved, there's no do-overs. It's fixed. And it's interesting that he said that, I think, in verse 26. Uh, when he wanted to go from one side to the other, he says, besides all this, there's a great chasm fixed. It's fixed. Like I said, there's no purgatory. There's no limbo. The only limbo that I know is the game where you try to go under a stick. <laughs> that's, that's about it. Limbo. So we see... We see the shocking end of people who actually think that they, that they are serving Jesus when they're not. So we've seen the two gates. We've seen the two trees and their, and their fruits. We've seen the, the sayers versus the obeyers. And now finally, we're going to see the two spiritual houses and their foundations. And by the way, all four of these contrasts, once you understand this, maybe you picked this up already. All four of these contrasts end in judgment, good or bad. There's no in between. This is the end of either the narrow way or the broad way in each of these. Um, so in verses 24 to 27, he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Um, in this case, this is the result of hearing life-changing truth. It's Mark 4.20 illustration. He hears, accepts, and bears a big crop, 36, a, a bountiful crop, 30, 60, 100 fold. The rock built his house on the rock. This is the solid foundation based on scripture, based on surrendering, being helpless, based on believing in God's grace, accepting God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone, plus nothing. This foundation, and this foundation as a result, will withstand any trial that life has to offer. We're going through some in the church right now. The rain, verse 25, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. We could, we could get shaken. We could cave to sin sometimes. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But we, Psalm 34, 1, praise the Lord at all times throughout all of our trials. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. These trials, read 1 Peter. If you're taking notes, you might want to read verse, 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 9. Talks about the new birth in verses 3 to 5. Talks about the reason for trials. They prove our faith over and over again until the revelation of Jesus Christ. When he says to us, well done, good and faithful servant. This foundation will withstand anything. The flip side to this, 
And the tragic end of this is verses 26 to 27. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Now, the sand here is a dry riverbed. It's a wadi. Under normal circumstances, there's no danger. But it's foolish to build any physical house on, a, on, a, on sand because there's nothing solid to anchor it down in times of adverse weather conditions. The word foolish here, many of you know this, it's uh, moros from <laughs> the, the word we get moron from. Moron, stupid, dull. They're ignorant to scripture. They're building their house on religion and their estimation of themselves. And understand one thing, from a street view, and I've said this before from up here, from a street view, when you look at these two houses, externally, they both look the same. If you bought a new house, there were different models that you could choose from according to the builder's specifications. The builder's specifications of everything that you could see is, this, are the same. Measurement for measurement, same size bedrooms, same color paint, you name it, same thing, okay? It looks like they're gonna be able, to, it looks like they could be 5,000 square foot homes. They look beautiful, okay? But unfortunately, and this is what he's going, uh, going after, what's in the heart. What we can't see is what the house is built on. And as a result, in verse 26, of not building the house on the foundation of rock bed of Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, uh, the, the head of the church, everyone who hears these words and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Very tragic ending. No fear of the consequences of not acting on Jesus's words here in other texts of scripture. Uh, and it great was its fall. The illustration here of a physical house built on the dry riverbed, torrential rains come, floods come, the winds take it out from the top and teeter it and then if it's still standing the floods came and just take it out from the bottom because it's not built on a, on the rock it's built on the sand easily easily a, it, it, easy, an easy target and these are the people from a spiritual standpoint brethren that do not build their house, spiritual house on scripture they don't know the verses they have no virtually no scripture verses stored up in their in their treasury that they could draw from in times of trial their spiritual bank account their spiritual treasury is 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 bankrupt they have nothing and any kind of faith that they had is nothing it's wood hay and stubble it's nothing it won't stand the test okay and again these are people that are ignorant to scripture certainly religious people uh, no consequences. They don't fear any consequences. Just show up at church, pray a prayer to be saved, you know, sing a few worship hymns, you know, uh, do all these things, give God an hour a week, receive the sacraments, uh, say the rosary, you know, you name it. It happens and it's prevalent in Protestant churches as well as the Roman Catholic Church. Let's not in other uh, liturgical types of religion. It's me, the end result is total destruction.
So as I close, let's consider these four contrasts, and I think they demand four questions. If you're here with Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you're secure. You know that trials will come, but you build that house you, because you built your spiritual house and you are, you are submissive and obedient to God's word. Not perfect. We're going to sin. We confess our sins. We keep short accounts. But the thing is, um, we will be able to withstand any trial. And we think about our brothers that are dealing with trials right now, our brethren in the church. Which pathway are you currently traveling on? The broad or the narrow? Are you building your house on the solid rock? Or are you building your house on religion or your estimation of yourself? Second, are you giving sanction to any teacher who looks trustworthy based on their appearance and sounds educational? Or are you searching the scriptures like the Bereans did in Acts 17, 11, quote, to see if these things were so? Verses 21 to 23. Are you merely saying that you believe in Jesus Christ, but inwardly have no interest in living in submission and obedience to his word? And then finally, does the foundation of your spiritual house currently sit on the Petra, the solid rock bed of the confession that Peter made? Uh, you are Peter, Petras, and upon this rock bed, Petra, uh, the rock bed of Jesus Christ, his, for his death on the cross, forgiveness of sins. Are you sitting on that rock or are you currently sitting on the sandy, dry riverbed of religion or perhaps your lofty estimation of yourself when compared to others because you have, you have yet to act like Jesus said in verse 25 and 26 on hearing Jesus' commands. Just take you back to five, Matthew 5, 3. Those of you who may be here without Jesus Christ and may be thinking that you're good enough for heaven or might be listening on, uh, on social media, we can't save ourselves. Heaven has nothing to do with earning anything. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's not about comparing ourselves with others. It's comparing ourselves with God's standard. James 2.10, what does it say? If you transgress one one commandment of the law, you're guilty of all of them. There's nothing that we could do to save ourselves. Matthew 5.3 really says that the way to be exalted is to go all the way down and become like a child. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The illustration of a spiritual beggar with no resources to deem themselves righteous. We come to God with nothing to offer. Isaiah 64, 6, all of our righteous deeds are an offense to God, so much so that they're filthy garments. They're a filthy garment. We have nothing to offer. How foolish it would be if I was in a drowning pool and I asked one of you to pull me out, and one of you asked, said, take my, take my hand, Steve, and I said, and I can't swim. I failed the swimming test in boot camp too, by the way. <laughs> but, uh, so that might be a reality one day, who knows. But how foolish it would be for me to say, nah, that's all right, I'll figure it out. Meanwhile, I'm going down, huffing and puffing, you know, exhaling bubbles out of my mouth. How foolish. In the same way, when somebody says, I know, you know, you're on a different path, but my path works too. People claim that they have a relationship with God. They don't know the scriptures. If you put a Bible in front of them, the print is in English, but 
They wouldn't know how to navigate around. And these are religious people that have been going to church for 40, 50 years. And they're just caught up in the, in, in the perfunctory ceremonies and stuff. The end is destruction. Jesus said to the woman at the well, the true worshipers will worship me in spirit and in what? Truth. Truth. So we have to become spiritual beggars. If you have never understood that, you know, please see one of us after the service. I'd be happy to talk to you. I'll be here all day for you if you need it. We're in drown. We're all drowning. We're all born on that broad way. We have nothing in and of ourselves to offer God. It's only Christ. Romans 11, 5 and 6, uh, verse 6 says, If salvation is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Why? Because grace then would be no longer grace. So think about these things. The most important issue to settle in our lives when we understand that we're not guaranteed another day is are you right with God? Let's pray. Lord, I just um, pray that your word would go forth. If there's anyone in this place, seal these truths to our heart. May we understand that there are only two ways. Two ways. That's it. And I pray that if anyone's here and is thinking that they have anything to offer you, Lord, that your word, not, my, not me, I'm just the messenger, that your word would convict them of their need to surrender to your lordship and be saved on this day. In Jesus' name, amen.